Open your Bibles with me this morning to Galatians chapter 6. Now, I realized last week that I had said that we have two more sermons. I didn't mean that sermon and this sermon. <laughs> I meant after the last sermon, we have two more sermons. So today is the second to last in the book of Galatians. As we read only one verse this week and continue with the topic of sowing and reaping, but we're going to have a special focus on the phrase found in verse 10, let us do good. So let's read this verse in Galatians chapter 6 of this final exhortation before Paul gives his concluding thoughts. As we therefore, as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. As we've discussed over the past couple of weeks, Paul is finishing his thoughts of what a spirit-filled life looks like, of a person walking in the Spirit of God, a person that is not controlled solely by the flesh, but is somebody that is seeking after the Spirit of Christ and bearing fruit of the Spirit not works of the Spirit in the sense that we are working the Spirit out in us, but the fruit of the Spirit. Ultimately, God is the cause of any type of good action we do, yet He still commands us to cultivate what He has worked in our hearts. And as it were, the fruit of the Spirit is not necessarily seen through a pomp and show. It's not seen through extravagance. But a person walking in the Spirit is somebody who is properly utilizing both their time and their resources. Now, when I think of what the Spirit looks like in an individual, most of the time, the way I envision it is somebody that is overwhelmed with the Spirit of God to whom we see singing praises to His name and crying uh, from their mouth and their eyes and tears flowing down, and we think that is the image of somebody filled with the Spirit. Yet... Paul springboards from walking in the Spirit, that exhortation to walk in the Spirit, to then he commands them to go out, bear the burdens of other believers, communicate to them that teaches to you, and then he gives this final conclusion as it is attached directly to sowing and reaping, let us do good unto all men. Well, he begins this phrase by say, or this verse by saying, as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good. This phrase, as we have therefore opportunity, does not mean, as I have interpreted in the past, as somebody that, you know, when I have an opportunity here or there, I'll try to do good. Where well, that's true. Sometimes God places opportunities in our life and gives obvious moments where he shows us that he is going to bless us to be a blessing to somebody else. There are very many opportunities we have on an individual basis to where God has given us the ability to minister to other people. I'm sure you can think of moments in your life where God has blessed you to be able to have an obvious moment to where you said, God has given me this time to be a blessing to somebody else and do good unto them. There are lots of instances, some big, some small. You think you see a friend that's broke down on the side of the road, you think, I have this individual opportunity to do good to that individual. That is a true concept. 
But the idea here in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10 when he says, and we have their, as we have therefore opportunity, he's not meaning on an individual circumstantial basis, but he means the opportunity that we have in the due season of our life. In other words, as we have the life that we have, our entire life is an opportunity to do good for other people. He's not speaking here of an individual, well, I have this opportunity, I have that opportunity, but he's looking at the grand scale of your life, that the grand scheme of your life should be to do good for the glory of God to other people. You see, our entire life is built on this type of principle. We shouldn't mistake the fact that in Matthew chapter 25, Matthew chapter 25, when Jesus Christ in this instance separates his sheep from the goats in verse 31. And it's interesting that when we are given this picture here, he doesn't say his sheep, his sheep and his goats. He doesn't say the sheep and the goats. But he uses a possessive phrase here, his sheep, and the non-possessive, the goats. They're the goats, but they are his sheep. And the distinguishing factor here that he gives between one and the other, what distinguishes one body of individuals from another body of individuals, the sheep and the goats, what is it that distinguishes them? Now, you can read in Tom Constable's commentary on the Bible, and he gives this little bit of a historical reference that we might overlook if we just read the text by itself. I always say that studying history or even studying the background of the Middle East gives us a little bit of a window of what's going on. Now, if I asked you to draw a picture of a sheep, you draw this pretty little picture of this fluffy animal, white as snow, and it, you know, it's a distinguishable. And if I asked you to draw a picture of a goat, American goat, it's pretty distinguishable. Uh, you draw, draw a skinny, uh, just a horned creature that just is eating a can, and it'd be easy to distinguish between one and the other. In the Middle East, they look a lot more alike. And somebody that's not a shepherd may not be able to distinguish one from the other. That should tell us that just on the onset, viewing people from the outside, we're not the ultimate judge, right? Sheep and goats can sometimes look a lot like each other. <laughs> from the external, we may see somebody and make an immediate judgment and say, that person, that man is going to bust hell wide open. I bet they said that about the thief on the cross, right? I bet they said that about him as he hung there and said, that man is about to bust it wide open, yet God knew the work that he had done in that individual's heart. And sometimes we take snapshots of people and see and say, this person's sheep, this person's a goat, but it's noteworthy to see that in the Middle East, they look a lot more alike, so it takes a shepherd to distinguish. Now, it's true that the Word of God is one way in which God has given us to distinguish. He's given us the assurance as believers to know that we are sheep, but even then we take snapshots. Ultimately, there is going to be one judge who separates his sheep from the goats, who sees perfectly and is able to distinguish with perfect judgment, not with snapshots. But how does he distinguish these two different groups? You read, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory, in verse 31, and all holy angels with him, and shall he sit on the throne of his glory. 
And before him shall be gathered all nations, and shall separate them from one another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left hand. Then shall the king say, Come un say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Notice the description he gives of them. For I was an hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in the prison, and ye came unto me. He looks and says the distinguishing mark of the sheep, the children of God, those that have been touched by divine grace. Now, I believe that truth is important, and y'all know that. I'm a strict literalist when it comes to the Bible, and I'm as opinionated as the next preacher. I believe in absolute truth. But at the same time, it's interesting that he does not say, Come unto me, ye blessed of my Father, for your doctrinal creed was more correct than the other person. <laughs> He doesn't actually say that right there. And I believe doctrinal creeds are important. They are. Articles of faith are important. The way we interpret the Word of God, as Jesus says in John chapter 8, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And then if you continue in my truth, you shall be my disciples indeed. Truth is important. But the distinguishing mark that he gives here is not one that we would, ex that we would necessarily expect. He says, the distinguishing mark of your life was one of a charitable, self-sacrificing individual. Now, it's not the cause of why they are inheriting the kingdom. Notice this kingdom is prepared for them from the foundation of the world. This kingdom was given to them in Christ in covenant before they ever did any good or evil. And if God foreknew anything about these people, Psalms chapter 14 tells us that He didn't foreknow what a good they would do, didn't foreknow the acceptance they would give to His Son, but what they, He foreknew was that all had went astray. So it's not based on this, but it's giving evidence. It's giving evidence. And also equally, it is declaring God just in His salvation. It is declaring God just for what he has done in their hearts. So he says, the distinguishing mark here is, For I was unhungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, I was naked. You visited me, you took care of me. But notice what the righteous says. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered and fed thee, thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? They didn't even realize that they were doing it. Consider that. Like, the nature of the sheep is such that they don't even necessarily notice that they're doing it sometimes. It's the nature of the sheep to do it. Now, I've compared it to this, you know, we know that we have passed from death unto life. Why? Because we love the brethren. That is one of the distinguishing marks of a child of God. They love the church of God and self-sacrificially take care of them. But yet sometimes it's hard to love them and we have to force ourselves to do it, right? <laughs> I've put it this way. I love my children. Sometimes I got to wake up and fake it. <laughs> I got to fake loving them sometimes because they're not always lovable. And it's like that. Sometimes we have to purposely think 
feed the hungry, take care of the sick, visit those that need visiting. That's pure and undefiled religion. But even though it is something that I understand that I am to do and I force myself at times to do it, it's not something that I'm hating it while I'm doing it. Why? Because it's in my heart to do it. It's in my heart. It's imprinted on the very depths of my soul by the grace of God. I love the church of God. I love the people of God. And I want to serve the children of God. This is a distinguishing mark of the sheep. Ironically, we won't focus on this, but, you know, Jesus marks, verily, verily, or verily, I say unto you, inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of my brethren, ye have done it to me. When we do this to one of God's children, we're doing it as unto Christ, but it's ironic that those on his left hand look and say, hey, we were doing this the whole time. What about us? And he says, you weren't doing it. <laughs> Why? Because he wasn't doing it from the heart. The plowing of the wicked is an abomination to God, as Proverbs tells us. Yet, we have this distinguishing mark that marks out the children of God, those taking care of other individuals. I printed off a quote I want to read to you right now. Um, this is from Tertullian, if I can pronounce this word correctly. He was one of the early church fathers, very early, wrote extensively in apologetics. He wrote extensively on defending the church of God in that age. And I want to read to you a little bit from him. The quote begins, Those who preside among us are elderly persons, not distinguished for opulence, but worthiness of character. Everyone pays something into the public chest once a month or when he pleases, and according to his ability and inclination, for there is no compulsion. These gifts are, as it were, the despots of piety. Hence we, re we relieve, this is where it really gets into what they're doing, hence we relieve and bury the needy, support orphans, and decrepit persons, those who have suffered shipwreck, and those who, for the word of God, are condemned to the mines or imprisonment. This very charity of ours has caused us to be noticed by some. See, say they, how these Christians love one another. This was so implemented in the first century churches that you would have men such as Pliny, which was one of the Roman governors sent to inspect the Christians. They called them the Galileans. The Galileans, because they followed that man from Galilee. And they would go to inspect the Galileans, these Christians, these Christ followers. And he would look and say, they do no wrong. They break no laws. They simply confess that Jesus is the Christ and they worship him as God. That's important because they were worshiping Christ as God in the first century. This isn't something that was made up later on down the road. And he says they worship Christ as God. There is no distinction with them between age or gender. They worship collectively together. They take care of each other. They make a vow to do no wrong. And then he goes on to say, we must stop this sect. I, that's the craziest thing in the world to think that these people that have shown to be vindicated from all wrong would be persecuted. But he says, these folks are dangerous. They looked at these individuals and they say they really love each other. They take care of each other. They take in orphans. They take in, uh, they take in the people that are in need. Those, as he says, the decrepit persons and those that have suffered shipwreck, those who for the word of God are condemned to the mines or imprisonment. He says these people, they have taken in, they have loved. They have 
shown Christ's love to them. You see, this is a mark of a believer in Jesus Christ and the New Testament church. And it's not just one, as I said, that is done when I have opportunity once every couple of years or maybe once every couple of months, but it is a lifestyle. It's an approach. It is something that an individual does because he's been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, I heard Sonny Powell say one time that, speaking of young preachers, and it has stuck with me, you don't call and visit and see how people are doing because you have to. You do it because you want to. That's your family, brother. And I know we, every person in here has a life that is more hectic, as it were, <laughs> than a raging, flooding river, right? We all got that. But still the characteristic that we're given is a body of believers taking the opportunity of their entire life to do good to everyone that they can. You can say, well, Brother Josh, that is probably a distinguishing mark of some people, but I just don't know. There are some people that are hard to love. You know, <laughs> Jesus took the Sermon on the Mount, and after he says in Matthew chapter 5, after he gives the Beatitudes and begins to expound on them to describe what it means ethically and worked out into somebody's life, what it means to be the blessed poor, the blessed mourner, the blessed meek, the blessed hungering, the blessed merciful. He goes into describing what that looks like in ethical terms. And he says in verse, verse 43, He have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself and hate thine enemy. And that was a perversion of the Old Testament law. It never said to hate thine enemy, but they said if it means to love one, it must mean that I must equally hate the other one. Jesus looks and says, you shouldn't make this false dichotomy. You shouldn't say if it means one, then it has to exclude the other. And he looks and says, but I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to, the, to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. For this reason, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. He says the reason we're doing this is so that we can show ourselves that we are the children of God. We love all people. Our life is an example of God's love, not just in individual opportunities, but as a whole, the season of our life is an opportunity to show God's love to everyone that is around us, to every individual. You know, sometimes you get mad at somebody and you just get so frustrated and so angry and I think I just can't handle it anymore. Well, and you think, you know, I'm not commanded to love them. They're not my spouse. They're not my neighbor. <laughs> well, even our enemies. That kind of takes it from just a vague a vague principle to very specific particulars. I think it was John Stott that once said that it's easy to love humanity with a capital H without loving humans individually. It's easy to love on a large scale. I love everybody, yet, you know, you don't like that one and that one and that one and that one. <laughs> you know, you go through, I love you. Oh, I love people. I just don't like persons, right? <laughs> I love all these people, but just not the individuals. And you see, this takes it past saying I love 
humanity with a capital H and taking it down to the particular, even the enemy themselves, because Christ, first in Matthew chapter 5, he says that the his reign falls on the just and the unjust. It doesn't specifically, and God could make it fall just on the righteous. I mean, our God is miraculous. He could make rain fall in his children's yards and yet stay dry in the person right next to him, couldn't he? Our God could do that. I, I've laughed that I'll be walking at the track, I'll be running, and I, I, I will get in my van and go to pull out, and it's pouring down rain. <laughs> like, where did this happen? My house is flooded, and I live one mile from the track, and nothing's happened. God can make it one, rain one place and not the other, but God says his rain falls on the just and the unjust. Therefore, our rain of goodness must fall on all men equally, on all people. This was the same principle that Jesus addressed in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, when the very well-known story of the Good Samaritan. As the Jew was there trying to justify himself before Jesus Christ, he asks him, who is his neighbor? And he's wanting to know this so that he can kind of find some type of freedom. Well, I've done that, right? I've done what I'm supposed to, and he gives this example, and I'm not going to read all of it because it is long enough that it would need a more full exposition if we read all the particulars. But the general theme of the story, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He falls among thieves. Priest passes by, a Levite passes by, and a Samaritan passes by. You have two people that were what would be looked at as the upper righteous of that era, and yet both passed by and ignored, went around. Yet the Samaritan, the one that the Jews forsook, the one that the Jews thought were the ones that were the dogs of their era, they were the people that were brought into their land when they were taken out into captivity. These people, these foreigners who are in our land, this one came and helped. And at the end of it, after this man did everything that he could, Jesus finally looked at that person and says, okay, okay, which now of these thinkest thou was the neighbor unto the one that fell among the thieves? And the man couldn't answer any other way, but said, he, show, he that showed mercy on him. Then he said, go and do thou likewise. He says, look, quit looking at the particulars of the situation. Quit looking at, oh, do I really want to help that person? This has been something hard for me to learn, but God has kind of hit me with it before. There's been some folks that I, I have not necessarily wanted to go. One time, I'm going to use this ex example. Uh, I was driving to Ebenezer Church, and I saw this young man. He was walking. He had his thumb out, and he looked scared to death. And I was bad at age 18 to 21 picking up hitchhikers. I was bad about that. I've gotten better about it. I was bad about doing that. Um, I've, I've picked up hitchhikers from downtown Birmingham to all sorts of different places. And I was, I was, I've, I've stopped because I typically have children with me. But I was like, I, I thought in my head, I don't have time to pick up this kid. Then all of a sudden, I felt conviction. I turn around and I go pick him up. The, the young man probably hadn't bathed in a day or two. I start driving him and I, I'm, I'm thinking, why did I pick this kid up? And then he starts talking. He's scared to death. 
He missed his bus. He scared his parents are going to get mad at him. And he, he was walking a good 15 miles to school. And so I'm driving this kid, and all of a sudden I feel this conviction. I'm thinking, you know, you, you thought this was an inconvenience to pick up somebody. You were going to go around him. And this child, this, this young man you think probably hasn't bathed. And I, I thought to myself all of a sudden, well, Josh, what do you think Jesus Christ did for you? And how do you think you looked to him? in your own depravity, when he came down and died for you on a cross and the stench of your own sin was there before him at all times, how do you think it looked to you as God came down, took on flesh, hung on a cross for you as an individual, and yet you think this person is an inconvenience? You see, this is why it's transformative when we see that the gospel is not just worked out in terms of being caught up into some over-spiritualized moment, but walking in the Spirit goes down to the particulars because what God has done for us transforms us not just in worship, but in life. It takes us and transforms the way we think about every instance in life. It takes us from getting mad at an individual because of something they've done for us to having pity on them because we understand that we, left to ourselves would have the same anger, the same frustration, but by the grace of God, we don't. And when I laid my head down on my pillow at night, realizing that God has shown mercy to me throughout the day, how much more should I show mercy to every person that I meet? The person that went and showed mercy on him was the one that was his neighbor, and Jesus says, go and do thou likewise. Now, I want us to see that this does not mean that there are not stipulations to this. This does not mean that there are not stipulations to how a church, whether collectively or as an individual, helps. Now, we want to see that in 1 Timothy chapter 5, 1 Timothy chapter 5. Paul is giving Timothy, probably ordained somewhere around five to six years at this point, a young man, uh, giving him instruction in how he is to deal and work among the church there at Ephesus. And he says, honor, the, honor widows that are widows indeed in verse 3. Honor widows that are widows indeed. Now, specific to the context of this chapter, he's referring to how you work in an interchurch relational fashion, how church members work within the context of the local church. So even though this doesn't have context to outside, we are still going to see that there's not just a blank check written, in essence. Because he says, honor the widows that are widows indeed. What he means by this is you are helping. Honoring is to help. Whether it financially, resources, time, honor, you do. It kind of gives weight to that phrase, honor thy father and mother, right? Honor widows that are widows indeed. But, in verse 4, if any widow have children or nephews, let them learn to first show piety at home and to requite their parents. For that is good and acceptable before God. So he says the first principle that we see is that it starts in the family first. As I mentioned before, uh, services, you know, my mother-in-law had an accident in Colorado this past week. First thing Rebecca does is get on a plane and fly out there. You know, I, I am apt to murmur because I have had to be Mr. Mom 
all week. And uh, I'll tell you, Daddy can do a lot. I've been washing dishes. Um, they pile up a little bit more because I know Rebecca's not going to come home. Now, that house is going to be spotless when she gets home, you know, because I'm going to know when she's going to get there. But right now, I may let it go a little bit, right? <laughs> We've got a lot going on, and I've been washing clothes. I've been doing dishes. I've been cleaning up after the dog. I, we are keeping it moving, doing everything for school, and I, I, we're keeping the house together. And I'm apt to, But I'm apt to murmur. I'm apt to murmur and say, you know, when are you coming home? When are you going to help? But in actuality... Her mom is in trouble, right? And right now, her mama needs her help. Now, she says she's coming home Monday and Tuesday. Praise God that she's coming home Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I pray, pray with me, right? <laughs> pray with me that she will be able to come home Monday through Wednesday. Those boys need her. <laughs> Daddy ain't cuddly. He's not soft. He's mean and coarse. They need their mama, and I need their mama. So y'all pray for us. But, you know, it's right that she went out there. When my mother had her brain surgery a few years ago, praise God, I didn't know why we moved back at the time, but I was, you know, we thought, why are we back? And we're back, and I'm here to take care of my mama. My dad falls off the top of a truck trying to be 16 years old and wash that big thing and breaks his shoulder. I'm there cutting his grass the next week. That's my responsibility. It first starts in the home. But here's the thing. Even in the church, if this widow does not have family, let's say if the, church, if the widow does not have people to help take care of her, what happens then? Or if the family is overwhelmed and needs further help, what happens? That's when the church comes in and says, how can we help? What can we do? There was one sister. This was interesting to me at one point. One sister we actually tried to buy a refrigerator for at a certain church. We had it shipped to her house because she, hers went out and she didn't have one and she was keeping in things with coolers with ice. And she said, I don't, I know I can't accept any help from the church. And she turned a free refrigerator around and sent it back to Lowe's. You see, that shows it actually has to, to take, you know, it's not just people need to give, it's that people also need to be willing to take, right? Pride can sometimes hurt us. It's hard for me to accept help. It is unbelievably hard I have a friend that's a minister in Memphis, and he always laughs when he sees me losing at something. He'll just sit down and grab a box of popcorn because he's wanting to watch what happens because I will not be beaten. I'm going to defeat this. But sometimes we have to have help. That's why God gives us the example of washing of feet. Why? Because not only are we to wash one another's feet, and I'll tell you, I have no problem washing feet. I have no problem washing feet. I've been doing it since I was a member at nine years old. That's what we're commanded to do. Ye ought to wash one another's feet as I've done it to you. You know what I have trouble with? Letting somebody wash my feet. Because that means I have to open myself up and show myself vulnerable to somebody. But it takes allowing both. It takes me allowing somebody to wash mine and me being willing to bow down and wash somebody else's, it takes that willingness on both sides. But we're given these contingencies, these, these focuses, these, um, these kind of marks. Is she a widow indeed? And he goes on to say, now that she is a widow indeed and desolate, trusteth in God, continueth in supplications and prayers night and day. But she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. He says, and these things give in charge that they may be blameless. He's saying that in the house of God, there should be standards in the way that we do things. Even if you call United Way right now on their helpline services, they will say, as they're giving out the information, 
you qualify only if you do this and this. Now, we have to remember that when the Good Samaritan walked up to the man going down from Jerusalem, he didn't ask him, okay, so what did you do to deserve this? He just helped him, right? He helped him. But that helping without judging the situation immediately should also be coupled and compared with the idea of understanding that a person living in perpetual sin should not be enabled to live in that sin through the help and charity of family, friends, and church. You see the balance there. We help the way we can, whenever we can, without giving any type of judgmental connotation, but at the same time, there has to be some type of line of saying, okay, if we're going to help you, if I'm going to help you, let's talk about how you're doing your finances. You don't need, you know, go Dave Ramsey. You don't need the bass boat. You don't need <laughs> the extra five cars. If you're having trouble paying bills, let's look at how you're paying them. You see, it gives stipulations but the immediate help, we have to understand, we're like the Good Samaritan, helping those, doing good to those. You know, we should never trigger over the phrase where it tells us that if a man is not willing to work, he should not eat. But we should equally not be frustrated when we read later on in Timothy, where he says in verse 17 of chapter 6, charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold of, that means to enjoy in fullness, hold of eternal life. You see, both are written in there and both give balance to the other. So going back to Galatians chapter 6, going back to Galatians chapter 6, seeing in view of how this is being worked out, as we therefore, as we have therefore, I'm going to get that have in a minute, as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men. That means specifically, Everybody that we meet, all men, all kinds of men, uh, the word all can mean all without exception, but it can also mean all without distinction. In context, it means all without distinction here and includes without exception. What it means is not just of the household of faith, but those out in the world that we see, those that see us around, whoever we can help, enemy, friend, neighbor, uh, those to whom we would look as unlikely candidates. I've... <laughs> it was eye-opening to me because I have lived in a very, very blessed environment. Um, specifically with my mother, who's always been cuddly and loving, raised in a home that uh, we went to church on Sundays. And, you know, and I promise you, I've said this before, I knew nobody would ever threaten to harm me because there was a Dexter <laughs> that was really big and that would hurt anybody that tried to. We lived in a very safe environment. Uh, Lord help anybody that hurts the children, the children-in-law or the grandchildren of Dexter Von Winslet. <laughs> they will find the wrath of Dexter. I lived in a safe world, unbelievably safe, safe on all grounds. When we started the adoption journey that we're presently on, and probably sometime in the next four to six weeks, we may not be here on Sunday. Pray for us. We're nervous. But 
the first conference we went to, it's called Rooted in Love, put on by Lifeline. And I, you know, Rebecca had done most of it. Guys, bless our hearts, we check out. And I'm going to use this to tie this in to this unto all. We kind of check out. Rebecca is the one. She has this folder tabbed, color-coded, you know, had resources go here or there. I'm just like, hey, we're adopting. You know, that's the extent of me. Hey, that's what we're doing. Rebecca's got everything figured out, and I'm just following along behind her. We go to this conference, and they start telling us statistics. The first time that I heard the, word, the, the, the statistic that there is over 153 million orphans in the world at any given moment. <laughs> That's half the population of the United States, 153 million, worldwide. I was like, oh my goodness. And of those, 153 million, and the statistic varies every year. I'm just using what they gave us at the conference. Of that statistic, about 0.5 will ever be adopted. I began to cry. Y'all know me, I, you know, even though I say being filled with the Spirit isn't just always an emotional high, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit of an uh, emotional dude, and so I begin to weep at this conference around a bunch of other people, but I'm in shock. I'm in shock at the fact that this, you know, I live in such a wonderful environment, and to think that there are these kinds of needs surrounding me at all time, it opened up my eyes to awareness to hear of such statistics. And not everybody is called to adopt all 153 million people, right? And that's not the intent of me using that statistics. The point of using that statistic is to say that around us at every moment, there are people in hospitals, there are people in nursing homes, there are people around us in the church, in our family, that could use just a simple smile of somebody going in and saying, how are you doing today? And the beauty of the body of Christ is it's not just one person. It's everybody together as a body, the hands and the feet, the mouth, the neck, everyone together surrounding. Yes, it starts in the home, but it branches out from that, showing what the goodness of God is to everyone around them. How can we help you? And he says unto all people, but then focuses it a little bit. He focuses it especially, especially, meaning there's a special focus. Yes, we're to do good on everybody that we meet, everybody we see, those at work, those that uh, God gives us opportunity in the grander opportunity of our entire life. Everything around us is to be to do good unto all people, our neighbors, our enemies, everyone. Yet, especially, unto them who are of the household of faith. Unto them of the household of faith. That means there's a specific burden placed on believers to watch out for their spiritual family, to make sure they're doing okay, to make sure that they are surviving, to make sure that they are encouraged because it ties back to the very first principle that he gives in verse 2 of chapter 6, bear ye one another burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. He ties it back at the end that the spirit-filled life is one that is self-sacrificial to other believers 
in Jesus Christ. Yes, to all men without distinction, enemy, neighbor, friend, everyone around us, as we have opportunity in this life, we are to do good, but there is a special sense in when the household of faith is to be taken care of by one another. We're to go up underneath our brothers and sisters' shoulders when they're fallen and help them up. When our friends in Christ are not feeling well, we are to go and bear their burdens in, in, in a special way. Why? Because they are fellow believers in Jesus Christ. They are our family. Now, I know sometimes it can get a bit awkward. <laughs> I have had so many weird experiences at hospital visits. I tried three times to visit one person. I will not tell you who they are, what state they live in, what state I was visiting, so you'll never know. But <laughs> one time I went, they were asleep. The next time they were in a test, and the third time, and they still have no idea that I ever went and tried to visit her. The third time, um, they were in a very precarious situation that made my face turn red, and I turned around and just walked off. I said, I'm not going back. <laughs> you know, and they had no idea that I was trying to help all those times. But here's the thing. There is one who sees in secret. There is one who sees everything you do. You know, the old adage, if a tree falls in the woods, does it make a sound? You know, I think nowadays it could be applied if a good deed is not posted on social media, was it actually ever done? <laughs> As everybody takes selfies and promotes what they're doing, and I, you know, don't be wrong, I like a good selfie too. I, I think I have a pretty good selfie face that I can put on the internet and look good. But you know, if, if a good deed isn't put on the internet, is it really done? I will tell you it is because there is one that sees in secret. He sees the burdens of others that you are bearing. He sees every single prayer and cry of the heart that you give on behalf of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And you can say, I, I can't do anything except pray. Brothers and sisters, if you are praying, you are doing so much. Because when we're beckoning the God of all glory, the sovereign God of the universe, that is the greatest thing you can do. Yet faith without works is dead being alone, as James chapter 2 tells us. And we don't just wish somebody well wishes, but we go beside them as we are praying. Because very often the answer to our prayers is the church of God bearing the burdens of believers. Paul gives this exhortation. He's going to give a final close as we're going to study next week, about how all the glory of the church and of believers and ministers is laid solely at the feet of Jesus Christ, who is our glory. But as we end this week, let us be encouraged. I know sometimes it can get discouraging. I know sometimes it can be discouraging, not just doing good one with another, but even just going to church. We've had a few Sundays that have been exceptional, right? And I'm talking about numbers-wise. And it can get discouraging. We've had people uh, come, Saturday services, we're so blessed, and I always prepare my heart and mind, because I always think churches are a lot like the land of Canaan. You have hills and you have valleys. And every time I get on a hill, I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> here comes a valley. I know it's coming. I'm such a cynic. Whenever it gets on cloud nine, I'm like, oh, gosh, Rebecca always tells me, enjoy the moment. <laughs> and I'm like, I can't because I know tomorrow, I know tomorrow it's not going to be that way. 
And it can get discouraging when you see that mountaintop and then the next week maybe the numbers are lower, maybe the sermon's a little bit less spirit-filled, maybe it's more dry. Maybe the song service, the, the praise given wasn't just popping that day. Maybe the prayers were just um, said in the normal way they're said. There's nothing really going on. Maybe, maybe the mountaintop has went down and you're back in the valley and, and it's frustrating, it's irritating, it is overwhelming. Remember again verse 9. And let us not be weary. Let us not be faint-hearted. Let us not be overwhelmed to the point of quitting in well-doing. For in due season. Not we might. Not I hope we can. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. God gives this picture. First starting with the bearing the burdens of one another, of taking care of believers in Jesus Christ, to moving on to the financial support of the ministry, to continue to give for thy financial support to him that teaches the church of God as it moves, to then going into doing good, branching out not only to those that teach, but all children of God, helping them in ways that we can find to help them. And it's all circled around this. Your labor of love is not in vain. What you do that may seem mundane, may seem like just the normal things of daily life, calling people, visiting people, seeing how they're making food for people, um, trying to check on people. You say, this is just mundane. Going to church on Sunday is just mundane. It's just the normal every day. I want you to know it's not overlooked by God. And continuing in that, you will reap. You'll reap the presence of God in your life. You'll reap the joy of the gospel. You'll reap blessings that even if others do not see, the blessing of knowing that God's smile is on you, hearing that voice saying, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. The blessing of God will come. Let us not be weary in well-doing. Let us not be faint-hearted, but let us... As we have opportunity in this life, let us continue to do good unto all people, but especially to those of the household of faith, fellow believers in Jesus Christ. Let us continue to move forward, is my prayer. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, thank you for the ability and privilege we have to worship you and to serve other people for you. Gracious God, it is humbling to think that one day I will stand before your throne Lord, I will stand before your throne knowing that I deserve not according to my own abilities to be there, but knowing that your grace has been wrought in my life. Lord, I pray that I would be just as the sheep mentioned, that I would give water to the thirsty, that I would give food to the hungry. Lord, that I would clothe the naked, that I would visit the strangers that, Lord, I would do all that I can in this life to help those that I see around me, but especially, Lord, my brothers and sisters in faith. Lord, any way that I can help. Lord, however busy I might feel that I am, I pray, Lord, that you would allow me to utilize my resources to your glory. 
and to the benefit of other believers. Our Lord, we thank you for what your Son has done for us. That, Lord, as we have fallen among thieves, that, Lord, as others have passed by and could not save, Lord, that you, as truly our good neighbor, has came and taken us, cleansed us, mended our wounds, and made us whole. Lord, let us likewise do that for those around us. Lord, let us not be weary in well-doing. Let us continue as a faithful body of believers, believing your word, serving your people, and Lord, loving you. In Christ's name we pray, and amen.